This is a true story about faith, fun, poverty, identity, mental illness, and resilience, all centered around a drug-dealing toddler. Welcome to the Breaking Good Podcast. This podcast is made possible by the Louisville Institute. Special thanks to the Western Indiana Community Foundation, Vermilion County Community Foundation, and the Collegeville Institute. And special thanks to Mark Bennett, journalist at the Terre Haute Tribune Star. Except for Judith Dana Lumen Trent, her father and her mother, all legal names, street names, identifying details of living characters have been changed or composited to protect their privacy. Welcome back to the Breaking Good Podcast. Thanks for joining us for Episode 3. Back in Episode 1, we met Dana Trent and learned about her hometown, Dana, Indiana, In episode two, Dana described her parents' struggle with mental illness. In particular, we were introduced to Dana's gregarious father, his antics, parenting style, and his sudden death. Seven months before my wedding, I sent him a typed letter cutting him off in what I thought was going to be a temporary radio silence. He died six months later, one month before my wedding. When you wrote and sent that letter, what what was going through your mind? I was a daughter torn between two parents, just as I had been all my life. I was constantly trying to balance the seesaw of being budgy, my dad's Midwestern drug-dealing daughter, and Revy, my mom's people-pleasing Southern minister. The wedding was an ultimatum. I had to make a choice. Would I have my dad present to give me away and my mom be miserable? Or would I have my mother give me away without my father present in hopes that she'd be happy? In retrospect, instead of attempting to talk it through with my father or mother like a rational human being, I did what both of them would have done and did do at their very unhealthiest. I chose to cut it off, burn it down. I was attempting to save myself and my mother from my father's mental illness. And while I was successful at eliminating any chance of my father showing up and having a psychotic episode or a schizophrenic episode, my mother was still anxious and depressed at the wedding. After all, consciously or unconsciously, I was beginning to differentiate from my deeply enmeshed relationship with my mother, no longer available to constantly counterbalance her melancholy. Previously, you spoke highly of your father, despite his mental illness, 
his inclination towards illicit drug use and the very unconventional methods of raising you, it seems odd and contradictory that you would cut him off the way you did for your mother's happiness. It is difficult to explain the dynamics of being the daughter of a narcissistic mother, and I still struggle with that relationship even though she's died. Because of her depression and her very early retirement at age 60, she was unable to care for herself in many ways, and I became the primary breadwinner when I was 20. As an example, you know, she attempted to start a real estate career, but did it so poorly that I went into real estate school myself. And then I partnered with her to sell homes just to rescue her short-lived career. I came home every weekend from college and grad school to help with housework. And in grad school, I even suggested that we move in together. And that's when I gained a lot of weight, lost touch with my friends, and worried so much about our finances because we would have the fanciest dinners and desserts in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. She was unable to keep part-time jobs despite spending money on career coaching and resume writing. It was so frustrating. She had $15,000 worth of credit card debt by the time I was married. In many ways, I'm still unable to discern whether I was subtly manipulated into sacrificing my own independence and happiness for her, or if she truly was unable to live without my emotional and financial support. And we could never really have a conversation about it because surfacing any thoughts about what might otherwise be her semi-unconscious motivations was like asking for a difficult week of fighting. Let me put it this way. With the most subtle twitch of her eye or glimmer in her eye, I knew exactly whether or not something I was saying or doing was acceptable to her. And if it wasn't to her liking, I changed course. I played it safe. That was life with my mom. <laughs> that was fun. Oh, there you go. Six months after she wrote that letter to her father and one month before her wedding, Dana and her fiancé flew to Dana, Indiana for her father's funeral. We buried my father four days after he died. My uncle made the arrangements, which was such a blessing, because he was there on site in Dana, Indiana, and I was in way too much of a fog to have done it myself. At the funeral, my father's friends, his lifeline, welcomed me with open arms. I have no idea if they knew about the letter. 
I'm not even sure if my father had told anyone except his brother. But one of his friends did say to me, your dad said he was going to be at your wedding no matter what. Would he have shown up that day? We'll never know. My fiance, now my husband of 11 years, and I joined my family at the Dana Community Bible Church for his visitation and service. I stood and sat in the same sanctuary where my grandparents had taken my father and me to church. The line was out the door at visitation. It went on for hours and hours. People who would otherwise never step foot in a church waited patiently in the sanctuary to pay tribute to him. The funeral was a reflection of the friend that King was. It felt like the entire county was there because everyone loved King. And I mean everyone. When you looked around the church, you saw this eclectic family of people who loved my father. The rich, the poor, the sick, the healthy, the haggard and well-kempt, the rough and pristine, the tattooed, people who drink every day of their lives and people who have never had a drink in their lives. It was a beautiful patchwork quilt of the kind of person he was, a friend to all, no matter what. It was a real testimony to his loyalty, his charm, and his ability to make all kinds of people feel at ease. His graveside service was at a little cemetery called Bono. It's where my grandparents are also buried, and it's just south of town. After the service, we were walking back to the cars to head back into town, and one of my father's best friends came over to give me a big hug. My father hadn't been in the ground for three minutes, and this tall, huge teddy bear of a man shook my fiance's hand and looked him straight in the eye and said, if you ever hurt her, I will kill you. The fierce loyalty to King lived on. After the graveside service, we all went back to the Dana firehouse and had lunch made and served by the church in that same firehouse where my cousins and I had practiced jitterbugging with our grandmother. Someone brought a portable amp and mic and made an impromptu speech at the firehouse. This person called King a prophet. It was priceless. I also was beginning to feel remorse. Remorse for the letter, for turning my back on my sick father, for not standing up to my sick codependent mother, for denying the earliest parts of my life and the happiest summers and times of my life. And for seven years after my father's funeral, I stayed away from Indiana. I took care of my mom, who took a turn for the worse not too many years after I was married. And I finally went home again to Dana, Indiana for Easter 2017, three months before my mom died. I was shocked. 
The town that I had known as a kid, jitterbugging in the firehouse, riding my bike and swimming in my uncle's pool, was completely different. I'm sure I'd probably noticed it in 2010 at my father's funeral, but I just had tunnel vision just to get through the arrangements, the services, clean out his trailer, and then hurry back to NC to get married. But in 2017, I took a beat. I walked the streets. I saw how many houses were falling apart. I noticed that the mural of Ernie Pyle that had been so bright and colorful when I was a teenager in the 90s was now crumbling. I realized the effect that the missing grocery store had on the town. It burned down nearly 20 years ago and has not been replaced. This area, for all its amazing fertile farmland surrounding it, is a food desert. I grieved over the missing flower shop, the closed bank my grandfather was president of, the grocery store my grandfather had owned. All the businesses have shuttered. I saw poverty and a deteriorating town whose legacy is that this courageous hometown hero called Ernie Pyle, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who sacrificed everything to help a country hear about the reality of war. But in the same breath, I also saw a vibrant church community at Dana Community Bible Church where it is a tiny but mighty gathered community congregation of people who still very much love the town and want to preserve its legacy and serve its people. So that was April of 2017. And what I saw, I kept in my pocket and in my heart until I got to a summer workshop in Collegeville, Minnesota, at the Collegeville Institute. I shared a little bit about the story with the editors there, and the editors just looked at me and said, why are you writing about anything else? You've got to tell your story. I came home and interviewed my mother about our life in Indiana. She was very hesitant to share, and I think my renewed interest in Dana and our family really bothered her. I think she saw her Indiana time as necessary, in that she wouldn't have had me without meeting my father. But I also know that she was still angry and sad that so much of her life had been spent chasing happiness, even if she wasn't aware of it. She died several months later. Both of my parents continued to struggle with their mental states, poverty, and substance use until their deaths. They were never reconciled to all of that but I have so much more empathy now for both of them, much more empathy than I did when they were living, which is my own struggle and regret. 
Since the Collegeville Institute workshop, this Breaking Good project, which was actually named there, the editors came up with that name, has been a journey of healing my own wounds, grieving my parents' death, and helping others name their own challenges. I think that so many times when we meet people of faith, Christians in particular, we get this shiny, well-edited version of their backstories. I was guilty of this. I didn't want anyone to know that I was from Indiana, that I had lived a dangerous, illicit life, and that my parents were very sick. I hid that part of myself, the drug-dealing toddler. I hid it under the veneer of a Southern Christian goody-goody persona. But that's not helping anyone, especially me. It's very selfish work on my part. I'm taking something that happened to me and my own family and redeeming it by creating awareness and lifting up the gifts and strengths of a community and the church with a capital C. I am the age now. 40, my mother was when they moved to LA. So it feels very cyclical. I see our own nuclear family triangle as a micro example of macro issues facing the Midwest, including Vermilion County, including Dana, Indiana, and America as a whole. People are struggling. The quote, crazy poor addicted people, end quote, in our communities people who are humans, you know, people like me and like my family, someone's parents, someone's children and siblings. We are literally everywhere, in every town, every city, on every block, in every neighborhood. There are people on every street in America, in every classroom in America, in every church in America, who are struggling right now. Let's stay on the subject of the church for a moment. Looking back, what would you say was the role of the church in your family story? And for similar families, what do you think the role of the church could or should be going forward? We go back to Dr. Schuler. We go back to my grandparents who worshiped in the same Dana Community Bible Church pew of the same church for their nearly 60 years your marriage. We go back to my childhood and summers in Indiana where I was raised in the church. I had faithful parents and grandparents, and I ultimately became a minister and broke good. But I also very much have this breaking bad past. Faith is a through line in my life. I'm an amalgamation of all of these threads. Dr. Schuler's theology, my parents' theology, the Dana Community Bible Church theology, my own lived faith experience. But I have no doubt the church saved me. It was the safety net of family members, my grandparents, my aunt, my uncle, all the church members. They believed in me. The big question is, if many Americans are faithful Christian people like my own parents, 
and many of those same Americans are still struggling with their most basic needs, battling poverty, lacking access to mental health and recovery resources. You know, how has and does and will the church as a ubiquitous institution in American society, culture, and infrastructure see and meet people where they are in their struggles? It's too late for my parents, but it's not too late for someone else's parents, their siblings, their children, and their neighbors. The church is helping, but the church, with a capital C, is also undergoing an identity crisis, a transformation. With the ever-shifting American religious landscape, Christianity, even pre-pandemic, was in decline in the U.S., including a decline in regular worship attendance. While 70% of Americans still identify as Christians, there's still a decline, particularly among millennials and Gen Z, who are more and more identifying as none. So in pandemic era America, where things may continue to be in flux, who will the church become? How will it meet the needs of younger generations as the silent generation and baby boomers who are now the backbone of the American church die off? that the church has already done a lot and it's going to be called to do even more and very differently. For example, a record number of Americans died last year of overdoses. Nearly 100,000 people died of an overdose last year in the United States. That number is up 30%, the largest number of overdoses ever recorded. That means that if you walk out of your apartment, trailer, house, mansion, yurt, wherever you live, it's very likely that someone in your community has been affected by substance use this past year. You may even know someone who died of an overdose. So what are we gonna do? And that's just substance abuse. You know, what about poverty in rural areas? According to an article that Mark Bennett of the Terre Haute Tribune Star published on Dana, rural communities across Indiana have lost residents and businesses, schools and churches. Purdue University studied empty storefronts and dwindling jobs in 2015 and found that rural poverty rose 44% from 2000 to 2010. Folks may say, you know, well, move to the city and get a job. Well, many residents can't afford to live in the city. So how do we affect change where people already live and raise their families? When people are feeling their worst, when they're jobless, addicted, and heavy with mental illness, they don't wanna be judged. 
But the church can be a judgmental place. Church can be a hard place. So I think what we're seeing and what we experienced during the pandemic is a church that is forced to think outside its own walls. In other words, the church that depended on some sanctuary isolationism has had to rethink how it gathered and what it means to be the church with a capital C. The church is figuring out that they are more than buildings, more than Sunday morning worship services, and they are figuring out what they should be as people are in need and people are dying. And in this way, it's becoming an ecumenical opportunity. I understand that you've done some work to try and figure out how the church, how rural, impoverished communities can move forward. Tell us more about that. Since 2019, I began discerning what small part I could do. I applied for a pastoral study project grant from the Louisville Institute and set to work telling the story of this amazing historical town, its faithful folks, and seeing what resources were already present in town, and how could we leverage those resources to help all 600 residents of Dana and beyond to the 15,000 residents of Vermilion County. The town of Dana was granted $30,000 from the Vermilion County Community Foundation towards its indoor and outdoor community spaces. $10,000 for an engineering feasibility study on existing downtown buildings for an indoor community center, and $20,000 for the outdoor ball fields. These two designated areas of community life, downtown and at the north end of town, ensures that everyone in Dana, Indiana has a community hub within walking distance. Ultimately, these two community spaces, indoor and outdoor, will host all ages, children, families, senior adults, These two spaces will be the hub of programming, programming that will include children's educational and recreational services, senior adult services, family services, healthcare services, community meeting space for events, job search and job skills programs, health and wellness programs for all ages. And that is all thanks to the Vermilion County Community Foundation. I firmly believe that rural churches can collaborate and pool resources, time, talent, and treasure to address these urgent needs. The American church has buildings, it has money, it has people, and most importantly, it has a call to serve. There's no better combination. And the resurgence of rural communities is possible, especially as we are rethinking pandemic era economics. For example, what an amazing opportunity this might be for the rural church as the economy shifts to provide Americans more work from home positions. You know, in in theory, more Americans could live in rural areas and work remotely. Corn towns like Dana may become a hotspot for young professionals and families looking to relocate to a simpler, unencumbered place where the cost of living is more affordable and getting to know your neighbor is more accessible. 
It's the church's opportunity to be for children what it was for me growing up. I'm working on integrating these two seemingly disparate parts of myself. Budgie, my father's drug-dealing toddler and trafficking lookout, and Revy, my mom's minister and helper. I'm 40. I'm free to establish my own integrated identity. I know deep down that would make my parents happy. When I was born in Los Angeles, my parents almost named me Renee, which means reborn. My parents had terrible habits, but they had fervent faith. They believed in miracles. So do I. You have been listening to the Breaking Good Podcast, produced by Profound Productions. The intro music is entitled From the Heartland and is composed by Seastock, licensed from Jamendo. For details on all other background music and sounds, visit jdanatrent.com. There, you will also find additional show notes, photos, and more. Thanks for listening.